Welcome to the Lion's Roar Dharma Center podcast from Dona Darge Temple. This public talk by a student of Lama Yeshe Jinpa was recorded during a regularly scheduled Sunday service. I'm happy I uh, could be here today. I'm uh, very interested in Ellen's presentation, so it's very uh, auspicious that I have time to be here today. <coughs> uh, I wanted to make a few remarks, um, hopefully not duplicating what Ellen will say. One of the functions of the mandala is to remind us of the situation we're in, the context. In uh, meditation practice, sometimes we talk about pure awareness and realization, enlightenment, mind, um, and that it's universal, which is true, but it's also in a particular time, particular place. So all the sutras, even the tantras, generally start with, uh, at one time, we were staying at uh, such and such place, uh, Deer Park, you know, Sarvasti, and the Buddha spoke, and this is what I heard, right? So context. So the context is, here we are, Sacramento, right? You know, with these folks. Um, that's uh, the mandala also. I think this is the greatest number of children that have been here on time. So uh, the Little Buddha's program has grown, and uh, I've asked Patty um, to help Truco out. Patty has experience with children in the schools, and of course, Truco's a full-time teacher, and then also parents are helping because we're trying to have, uh, I don't know the number, maybe like one parent for every four or something, or one, something like that. Um, Truco's like, uh, she should belong to the SEIU union, you know, she's very, <laughs> I need help, so it's very, you know, so she's getting it because I like to say we, uh, we have a real temple when we have children and families. <clears throat> uh, also, um, I'm pleased to say that there have been many responses and sign-ups for the Mandala workshop here uh, next Saturday, and I'll be here to introduce. Uh, so uh, if you're still interested in coming, it helps Lindsay Parkinson to know because she's buying materials. But if you don't know and you just show up, that's okay too, right? 10, 10 o'clock next Saturday. And then also I'll be here next Sunday. Um, I'd also like to thank the donors that um, have uh, donated, particularly toward the end of last year and um, starting our fundraising campaign of uh, um, actually paying off the temple. Um, uh, where I think we... I don't know the exact numbers. I'd have to ask Erica, but there were there were donations over four or five thousand dollars. So, very appreciative. Every if thing counts. <clears throat> and then mentioning, I'm going to say this probably at the end too, because we have to hear it two times. So, uh, uh, we're doing uh, Susan uh, Ferrara's uh, initiated with our uh, other sangha friends in Sacramento helping uh, at Loaves and Fishes to prepare food, you know. So uh, you can talk about that with her afterwards. I think we sent out an email, correct? And maybe we have sign-ups. <clears throat> at least we can do in this, you know, no matter what your politics, at least we can feed people, right? You know, <laughs> I mean, we should house them too, but, you know, at least we can feed people. It's ridiculous. We should be feeding people, so... I hate throwing out food. I don't, I don't, you know, if you don't eat it, at least give it. <laughs> One time we were doing this little story, like, old timers remember we used to meet at, at the um, Gadatsu Church on Happy Lane. And we decided we were just going to make sandwiches because we couldn't cook there. I didn't have time to eat, which is usually the case. So I had, like, this um, really nice sandwich from. Um, wherever it was, Subway or something. 
plastic covering, you know, and everything. Didn't get time to do it, so I had it in my car going somewhere and really surprised a homeless person. I just gained the whole thing. <laughs> and, you know, usually people don't talk very much. He says, really, do you, do you want to give me the whole thing? I said, yes, yes, you get the whole, you get the whole thing. It was, felt great, doesn't it? You know, so I really thank you for, for doing that. It's a big responsibility. Mm. Then uh, you might have noticed, like, uh, uh, I have a new uh, person helping out as attendant. And um, some folks know you. We've already gotten introduced, like, Peter with one E. But... Uh, I was suggested why don't, why don't we just work on your you know how to pronounce our Russian style you know like that so uh, Piotr like how's that Piotr yeah that's good okay <laughs> so that will take some work but uh, so uh, he's really good at pronouncing it so is Jules and I think so is Michelle right yeah so Piotr is really uh, going to um, help out as attendant because Patty's doing little Buddhas and uh, he's also going to be here working uh, with Marie, uh, doing whatever. Uh, I appreciate them both for just saying, I'm willing to be here even if nothing's happening, right? Paying attention as if when nothing's happening, that's uh, very close to Mahamudra, right? <laughs> you're just interested no matter what's happening. Even if nothing's happening, you're just, you're just staying interested. You know, it's like, well, no, no one's here, nothing's happening. I'm loving it, you know. So I've heard that from Marie, and I, and I know I'll hear that from Piotr. So. And um, uh, I'm also, uh, he's interested in Dharma study. So a few people are interested in in-depth Dharma study. So I'm going to do it. I'm pulling uh, my bodhicitta out. And I'd like to initiate like a three-year Dharma study program. Uh, view meditation and action. View is like learning the scholarship and, and how things are. So reading original texts and second year, you know, focus on the meditation and yoga, the non-mediated uh, awareness. And third, uh, focusing on uh, service. Of course, we're doing all three all along. But this is a similar program to what Young C. Rimshay is doing at uh, my Tripa in Portland, my Tripa Institute in Portland. So it's not, I'm not, you know, this is traditional. But uh, three years goes fast, right? So we'll be reading uh, and meditating and doing a lot. Some of you are doing it already, but coordinating it all uh, is important. Because you can have all the right pieces. But uh, they might not fit together. You might be putting ketchup on your ice cream, you know? <laughs> like that. So uh, that's important. And then uh, the chaplaincy program, I'm delighted people are uh, doing that. You know, we ordained like six chaplains here. And uh, uh, that's uh, uh, totally totally new thing actually and uh, particularly in Vajana Dharma new thing and then Susan's at UCD that's exciting right sometimes like difficult you know it's like yeah like you know this is generally a friendly bunch like they want to be here but when you're going to hospital like people generally don't think I want to be here they don't want to be there and they're in you know so like that mm. and then lastly uh at 3 o'clock, I'm meeting with Basan and uh, Geshe Damshala uh, uh, because we've uh, been working on getting uh, uh, a young monk from uh, who's Mongolian, but at Sarajay, to, to come and help us out and help uh, uh, Geshe out. Uh, so we've written the letter to the American embassy in Mongolia and then visa. It's going to be a tourist visa. So get him here for a few months and see if we like him <laughs> and see if he likes us. His name's Nima. Nima means the sun. Nima, like N-Y-I-M-A. Nima, the sun, yeah. Like kind of radiant. But he's young, you know, it's culture shock coming here. So um, we 
we'll bring him over here and we'll see, you know. So uh, that's a step forward. So uh, there's more to say. I'll say a little bit at the end too, but I'm delighted to see many people here today. It's great. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. So, like, we have another musician here, Harry. Have you met Harry? Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> calling you out. Okay. So, enough. Now, I've cut into Ellen's time. So. Thank you. Look at that. It, it's okay because it's all part of the mandala. <laughs> That's what I've learned. So thank you, Lamala. You know, I'm usually pretty nervous coming and doing this, and it's um, in a way even a little more nerve-wracking when Lama's here. So if, if I sound nervous or if I look at my notes more, that's why. But on the other hand, he's got my back. So I know that um, you'll all leave with good information. So I'm um, really happy to be here. This is kind of the month of the mandala. So we've built a whole um, you know, month around it. It's fantastic. Um, so I was going to talk a little bit about mandalas, and in particular this concept called uh, the, the mandala principle. Um, which I just has found very useful in trying to understand why my life doesn't always look so beautiful. So I'll spend a lot of time talking about that. And then we'll have a little discussion and take a break and then do a, a meditation that I'll guide you in a little bit to help reinforce some of the things that we talk about. So there are lots of different kinds of mandalas. I know when I started Lions where I was just like, what, what the heck, what's a mandala? So what are some of the mandalas that people have heard of or are familiar with? Just any, the sand mandala, right? We had the monks from Sergei. I don't know how many people got to see it, but to build this beautiful structure out of sand. Yeah, so sort of a um, two-dimensional image of some sort with physical material. What else? What other kind of mandalas? Well, we do this, if, if you haven't been here before, I know it took me a while to understand what was going on, but we do a mandala offering in the prayers. And we have a mudra. I don't know who's mastered the mudra, but it's kind of weird when you haven't seen it. But it's a mudra, and when you, if you go on YouTube or one of those really official sources and look up what it's about, it's, it's my understanding it's supposed to represent Mount Meru, and then all the con- you can put your mala around, and then it's like all the continents and seas, and essentially you're you know, sort of humbly offering all of the world to the teachings and the teachers. You know, so we have these offering mandalas, and sometimes at the higher te- teachings when we have somebody special come or we're doing some special presentation at Lamala, there'll be a mandala offering with like this three-dimensional um, tray. Marie's really good at this with like the sand and the rocks and, and it's got other things in it. So there's sort of offerings of mandalas. And we have tonkas, like the one in the back is a Kala Chakra tonka and you know, very um, elaborate displays and usually there's symmetry to them and really intricate beautiful displays. Um, And so those are different ways we can work with mandalas and and have them as sort of icons or imagery help us do our practice. But, I mean, one of the questions is, can you get enlightened staring at like a pretty tonka? I mean, there are practices where people do stare at pretty tonkas. um, But it can also be a bit of a crutch. Um, So we're going to talk today more about um, the mandala in the sense of seeing the totality of all of life as a mandala. Uh, and last week, Lama introduced the mandala, including the Tibetan definition. I don't know if anybody remembers it, but uh, not to put you on the spot, it's kill core. And kill, does anybody remember what the parts meant? What did kill mean? Is the center. It means like the center of the mandala. And core is like the surroundings or even fringe it sort of is referred to sometimes in the translations but it means like society or organization or interconnectedness you know how things relate together so really uh, we're going to talk about like the mandala of life in, and how life is um, so the mandala principle then is that all of life is contained within the mandala all of it. 
emotions, non-emotions, phenomena, non-phenomena. You know, everything that's going on is contained in the mandala. But does our life always show up that way? You know, does our, and if you were here for the video, which Lama I didn't get to see, unfortunately, but there were some images, some of I, I think are pretty beautiful images of things working well together, you know, the fish all swimming in a circle or the plants opening up. But does our life always feel that way? I know mine doesn't. That's probably why I'm sitting here. It's because I went to Darshan too many times and said, Lama, my life's all messed up. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I could meditate if, if I didn't have all these other things I needed to do. If I wasn't a mom and I didn't have a job and I didn't own a ranch, and then I could meditate. You know, and he'd say, oh, it's Ellen, it's all part of the mandala. And I'd go, okay. And I'd leave thinking, is that supposed to help me feel better? Um, and so that went on for some time, maybe some number of years. But Lamala eventually mentioned this book to me called Orderly Chaos by Chogam Trumpa. I, I got it on Kindle, so I printed out a cover of it. Um, fantastic book a little bit difficult um, to get with the first read but so a lot of my talk is inspired by Lama's guidance and then this book Um, and what was great about it was uh, understanding starting to look at why my life doesn't show up that way and Chogam Trumpa in the book says it's really important uh, to be willing as a practitioner especially in the sense of mandala, to be able to look at our lives, and in particular, the, you know, the, the sort of samsaric part of our life. If we can't look at the difficulties and the suffering, then we can't get the beauty. So, um, so a lot of this talk is going to be about that, uh, which isn't always so great, but it's important, I think. Um, and one analogy I, I thought of recently is that of a puzzle. And I think, Lama, you mentioned the pieces coming together. So you think of puzzles. And in my family, we often do puzzles at the holidays for some reason. And, and now it's particularly good because all my relatives come. And now that we have Facebook, we don't really have anything to talk about when we get together for the holidays. And if I don't have a puzzle out, then people sit around the sectional all posting pictures of the turkey on Facebook. You know, and it's kind of, so we get a puzzle out, and then we don't actually have to talk to each other. But the, the thing about a puzzle is, you know, you look at the cover and it's so pretty, pretty picture, and then you open it up and you start to put the pieces together. You know, it kind of reminded me of life. We get into our 20s and we get a job, you know, we get a car, we get a place to live, and it's like, I don't know about the rest of you, but most people I know build the puzzle like from the outside, right? You build the frame because you can find the easy edges, and then you start to work on the images that you can recognize, and and you leave the harder parts for last, like the whole blue sky, that all the puzzles. And and that feels kind of like life to me, like like even where I'm at my point in life, I feel like I mostly have my puzzle put together, but there's still those missing pieces, and they feel like they're sort of right around the corner. But they, they never really fall into place like I want. They're always still right around the corner. And the, the thing about a puzzle is we think that we're trying to put the picture together, but I think an, a good analogy for the mandala principle is that the puzzle with the pieces apart is really where the juice is. It really is. I mean, imagine you and your friends get together. You look at this puzzle. Oh, that's so cool. I want to build this. You open it up, and in the box, it's already put together. (laughs) I mean, my relatives at Thanksgiving would be saying, hey, you know, I already ate. I'm going to go home. It's like the juice, all the juice and the energy of the puzzle is actually when the pieces are still apart. You know, and I think that's, that's kind of the idea behind the mandala principle is, we don't need to shove all the pieces together to wait till they're shoved all together. It's the act of them being what they are, some upside down, some apart, you know, and then we get to work with them. So if that makes sense to you, if you get that, then you're free to go back in the back and play with the kids and eat the snacks because we're going to talk about suffering now, and they're not, I bet you they're not talking about suffering back there. They're just having a good time. So... But otherwise, we'll talk a little bit more about why, you know, why do we sort of sabotage? What's, what's going on? Um, so in terms of, like, the suffering, I'm not talking about, like, the really tragic things that happen in life. Those are clear that, that you know, we're suffering and we're in samsara, but more of a, at a subtle level. So here, here's another little try-on for you. How many of you 
are someplace, go somewhere, and you find yourself with this temptation to like reach into your pocket or your purse and pull out your cell phone and check it, even though you're not waiting for some birth announcement or something. But there's just this, this like interest in sort of checking your phone, seeing what's going on. And, and what is that exactly? What has us go look for those things? You know, what has us do that? There's some kind of something, like a little bit of, you could say it's boredom, but I think that's a little bit not really the point. There's some sort of like discomfort, dis-ease, like tension or something, and the cell phone's a great way to kind of distract yourself from that. Well, I'm, okay, I'm a little tired, I'll look at Facebook or something, you know? Um, and what is that really about? And, and I would say even our lives are even more organized around struggle than just that. Like maybe not this morning, but think about Monday morning or whatever the beginning of your work week is. Do you just jump out of bed all excited and happy to go and all like ready and calm and zen about your day? I mean, usually there's like some pumping up you have to do to, to go out and face your day. Do, how about anybody have routines for talking themselves out of bed in the morning? Mm-hmm. Just, you must have one, huh? I bet oh, coffee. I did, about a bed at 2 a.m. Oh, at 2 a.m. But is coffee any part of your routine, Michelle? Not until after I leave the house. Okay, not talk to you. But what else? What do people use to like get ready for their day? Nothing. Okay, you're all transformed. But maybe a shower or a hot warm shower. Fresh clothes, right? the ritual of breakfast. I mean, breakfast, like, eat your Wheaties, or maybe it's your smoothie, or maybe it's your coffee. There's, like, this whole ritual we go through to, to really get ready for our day. You know, and we even... Meditation. Well, okay, I don't know if I'd put that in the same category, because I don't know that you come out of the meditation the same way that you come out of those sort of pump-yourself-up routines, but... Um, you know, I think we do that, and wh- what is... It? We even have language around it, like... Let's uh, gear up. Let's, uh, um, you know, or I heard one the other day from one of my clients. Let's circle up. And what is that? Is that like old, like, wagons where they get in a circle at night so that the wolves or the natives wouldn't attack? I don't know. But pony up, armor up, man up. You know, there's all these, there's all these words. Or in my, I use, there's one a lot that comes up in my work, which is fight the good fight. Like, okay, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a good person. But it's still a fight, right? There's some, like, struggle that we're going through. And what is that? You know, I think that there's a sense of in life that something is not feeling quite grounded, something evasive, or something's about to take us over, and we need to resist it. You know, we're, we're sort of gearing up for that. Or we want to go through life without getting hurt. We want to know who our friends are and, and avoid our enemies. And there's, there's a lot we do to go through to do that. And um, Chogun Trumpa talks about another aspect of it that, um, that really kind of lubricates, he used the, the word, lubricates this sort of samsaric way that we are, which is that we come, become a little cynical or glib about things. You know, um, in, in a way it sort of trivializes it so we avoid the pain of going through life and bumping into things that might not feel good. He says, there's a totality of frivolousness, a totality of looking for entertainment, a totality comprised of seeking survival through all pervasive aggression. And, and I particularly noticed this last year, like leading up to the presidential elections. All these people that I knew were very happy, otherwise go lucky kind of people were like writing the hate signs and going out and doing stuff. People were really angry. And there was sort of this aggression to it. Um, and even in my own house, one of my pet peeves last year is that my husband is, is cynical of, of what's going on in the world. And he blames certain, he happens to blame liberals, which, I mean, I'm his wife, you'd think he'd get that it's not so great for marital bliss to come to the dinner table and talk about how the liberals are screwing things up. And so I've been so mad at him for, like, why does he bring that conversation to our dinner table? Frustrating. I started reading this book. And I realized he's blaming the liberals, and now I'm blaming him. You know, I'm pretty effed up, too, if I'm blaming. I'm no better than he is. And then, like, the second or the third time through the book, I realized, well, shoot, now I'm blaming me. 
I'm blaming me for blaming him for blaming the liberals. <laughs> now, it's, it's pervasive. We look for an out, don't we? Somebody's got to be messed up. We can't just be with the experience of the sadness or the frustration. Um, so, and Chogun Trumpa says, again, the real problem is that we have to face putting ourselves in the same boat as those we're criticizing. You know, we're all in this together, and we're all doing it. Um, and if we don't, we're really frivolizing the whole, the whole what's going on. Um, so what do we do about it? How do we start to find a solution? Well, I think first we can pause a little bit and talk about enlightenment, because, you know, we don't really come here, Alliance, or, hi, how's it going? That's a great blast. Let's talk about suffering. And then we'll go have snacks. You know, we don't really just want to talk about suffering all, to, all the time, right? We're hoping for the enlightenment quality to it. But from a logical perspective, you know, what is en- enlightenment? I mean, enlightenment happens because somebody was confused and they want to know what they're going to be when they're not confused, right? Enlightenment exists because confusion exists, and confusion exists because enlightenment exists. So you can't really have one exist without the other. They both exist together, <coughs> Right? So in this mandala of life, we have to have both. We can't just hope to someday get to the enlightened mandala and leave the samsaric one behind. It doesn't work that way. So what are other qualities of this mandala, this mandala of life? Well, like my puzzle, it's got space. You know, there's spaciousness to it. And it's alive. It's awake. And it's full of possibility. You know, possibility that you'll be happy, possibility that you'll be depressed, you know, possibility that life will go smoothly, possibility there'll be bumps along the way, Um, you know, possibility you'll win the lottery, possibility you won't. But it's all there together in in its total sense, and it's very, very alive. Um, And it's got a sense of nowness to it. And sometimes Chogun uh, Trumpa uses this phrase that I love uh, in the book, and, and I've heard Lama Lao use it several times too, which is the razor's edge. We're really living on a razor's edge, and it's extraordinarily sharp and tentative, but it's alive. It's an alive space. And I like how it's described in the book, so I'm, I wanted to just read you an excerpt from the book. He says, living on the razor blade means at the same time living in the total space. Because the possibility exists that it might cut through us, destroy us, and the possibility also exists that we might be able to avoid the razor's cut. But these possibilities amount to the same thing at this point. The sense of the razor blade sharpness is very interesting, extraordinarily interesting. This is what we can call intelligence, primordial intelligence. We feel that razor blade sharpness and its cutting quality. We sense that, we feel it, and we also want to run away from it. We'd rather sit on or perch on something more solid, like a toilet seat, some place where there's no razor's edge. But when we're on the razor blade, such an invitation becomes a fantasy. It could actually be said to be a gift of God that we have not been presented with a comfortable toilet seat to perch on. Instead, we've been presented with a razor blade seat. You never perch on a razor blade. You just be on it with attentiveness. There's that sense of being there fully with nothing tentative about it at all. The whole thing becomes extremely powerful and spacious. And that is the enlightened or transcendental aspect of the mandala. This razor blade quality is something more than psychological irritation. Life as a whole becomes penetratingly sharp, unavoidable, and at the same time cutting. We could say that this is the living description of the truth, truth that life contains pain. According to Buddhism, life or existence is defined according to the truth of suffering, which is the razor blade. The truth of the origin, or origin of suffering is finding out that there is a razor blade. Then there's the truth of the goal, which is connected with seeing the razor blade as the path. Really amazing, I think. Um, where was I? Okay. Um, so, as I mentioned, when we're faced with this experience of a razor blade, we can take on a cynical or aggressive quality to us. 
<coughs> and um, Chogun Trumpa describes yet another layer to this suffering uh, that can happen, which is kind of a checking out, you know. It, more than even becoming cynical or aggressive, we can become kind of deaf and dumb about the whole thing and check out. He describes it as walking the blind man's path then just to numb out. And that's the real samsaric mandala. You know, if you just check out of the whole thing, then you're stuck. So what's the way out of this? You know, we have this nirvana, samsara, enlightenment, chaos, all going on at the same time. How do, what's the way out? Well, the way to work with the mandala um, is not to try to get rid of anything, or even as Lama says, not to become a good person. Um, actually, there is no way out. There's no getting rid of anything. Um, the way we work with the situation is not to try to get rid of anything, but to acknowledge our situation, really that we're in it. You know, the mandala contains all the emotions and all the experiences. And, and the freedom comes from stepping out of, of the numbness, you know, and into that space. And Jogam Trumpa describes it as like a dance floor. When you're actually willing to be on the razor blade and step out in that space, it, there becomes this freedom. It's like space opens up and you can start to move about in that space. So, but, okay, what, you know, what do we do in our practices to help, to help us, you know, be in that, in that place? So to see the mandala perspective takes a bit of an aerial view. Um, and I, some of you may have seen the images in the video and some not, but some of the images in the video, the, the filming's up way high, and it gives a different perspective. You know, it's sort of a physical, geographic aerial view. There were also some different treatments of time in the video, some of them were, were um, time elapse, or t- is that what they call it, time elapse, where you can all of a sudden see the flow of it that you could never see if you just noticed it in a point in time. And then some of them are slow motion. So this idea of getting some different perspective is, is really important in the, in the mandala because it allows us to not zero in on a particular detail or direction. Um, and also, a mand- the mandala is a place not really of a lot of thinking. It's a place of immense feeling and instinct, but not so much analyzing. So uh, it brings us back to really our practice of meditation as being particularly useful, because um, meditation gives us that uh, awareness and appreciation, you know, awareness of the how the... F- physical, phenomenal things in life fit together and appreciation really of the magical qualities of all that. But meditation is not necessarily easy, is it? Um, Of of those of you that have a meditation practice, how many of you, when you started your practice, felt at some one point or another like you were digressing? You know, have, you feel like, like you start this meditation, you're supposed to start feeling better, and then all of a sudden it feels really crappy. Um, so it's not always easy. And it can be very confusing. Uh, and, and one thing that Chogam Trumpa talks about in the book is how the, this teaching on mandala principle is not real specific or direct. It's kind of amorphous. And there's some saying, I won't get it particularly right, but sometimes the next step on the path is just the one that you're presented with, which could be confusion. So in this case, the, the thing to do is sort of just take that step anyway. Um, and, and when we start meditating, actually, we feel pretty foolish, I think, right? Because we're supposed to sit there, follow our breath. I mean, what does that mean, follow your breath? Like a little mini-me going up your nose and down your breath. I mean, you, you got to kind of like make up what this is supposed to be and calm your thoughts. I mean, come on. Thoughts don't ever really get calm. So it's all like really ridiculously foolish um, practice to start. But um, what happens, and this is some from personal experience and some from what I've read, is that um, you start to get a gentleness to you, you know, in, in the process of going through this foolishness and begin to drop the need to deceive. And it really then opens up all sorts of different ways of seeing the world. So um, I think that's, that's important. Um, 
So it creates a sense of non-defensiveness. I have to read more from my notes here because when I was talking about the suffering part, I can talk more from personal experience. But when I talk about the right way to do things, I need to more rely on the teaching. <laughs> um, but really, we can start to lose, and I don't think maybe you notice this because it happens over time, but lose this sense of defensiveness, and it comes with a sort of a richness. All of a sudden, there's a richness to life and an expansiveness and sort of magnetic qualities that just show up in your life. And then, with the help of a teacher, I think there's, a, there's an in- intelligence that's awakened. Um, and it still messes with your ego, right? It still creates all this chaos in your life because things aren't orderly like you, know, like you want them to be. They're, not, they're still people up, upsetting your apple cart and whatnot. But it's okay because with that intelligence comes a feeling like you're going to be all right. You know, like everything's going to be okay. This really feeling of security, like you don't need to look outside yourself anymore. There's this experience that develops within you. And I thought it was interesting, Dora Lee's talk last week. I don't know how many of you were here, but Dora Lee from Ballet Stream came and talked to us. She's going to do kind of an art or mandala practice around grieving. And she was talking about the Buddhist's experience in the grieving process, and she used some language that I thought was great. She says, the practices bring capacity to be fearless and courageous and to turn towards our suffering, and it provides the light through which we can see. You know, and, and I was recently seeing Lamala, I think it was the last darshan, and talking about transition in my own life, and he said, Ellen, you're going to be okay. You know, that's the thing about Buddhists is they can face loss or suffering or change and know that they're, you know, it might not be pretty, but you're going to be okay. And that's pretty cool. Um, so eventually there's like an awakeness without particularly a purpose or a goal, without an aim, and it tends to bring a lot of space, really. And there's this um, sense that you're adequate and you don't need any conventional proof of anything. And this is really working with the mandala to see the totality of all of this going on, the whole area, and you begin to have really an extreme panoramic vision with no boundaries. And then you can afford to relate to particular things, particular energies, particular upsets, and know that no big deal, you know, that you'll weather through it. Um, So we'll have some discussion in a minute, but I wanted to do one more reading from Ordinary Chaos where um, it talks about this mandala quality and then empty-heartedness. What the mandala offers and the empty-heartedness quality, this is also from that mandala awareness is a state of fearlessness arises. And through that fearlessness, the workings of phenomena become self-existing magic. In this case, magic is not conjuring up demons or playing tricks. It is magic in in the sense that the phenomenal world possesses a sense of enormous health and strength, wholesomeness. From that sense of strength and wholesomeness, a person is able to nourish himself, and a person is also able to contribute further nourishment to the phenomenal world at the same time, this exchange. Lamala talks about this exchange a lot between the grounded you and the outside world. So it's not a one-way journey, but a two-way exchange. That exchange of nourishment, which is basic sanity, and the sense of fearlessness bring a state of awareness back. So a constant circle of exchange takes place, and it becomes enjoyable. It's not that one enters into a state of euphoria or anything like that, but still, it is basically enjoyable, because the sharp edges, which are doubt and uncertainty, begin to dissolve. The whole thing takes place on the basis of empty-heartedness. You don't exist, and the energy doesn't exist, and the phenomenal world doesn't exist, and therefore everything does exist. And there's an enormous magical quality about that. It is completely lucid, but at the same time tangible in some, in some sense, because there's texture and the absence of texture. There's a sense of journey and a sense of discrimination and there's a sense of passion and aggression in everything. But it seems that everything operates on the level of no ground, which makes the whole operation ideal, so to speak. The traditional term that applies here is Sambhukakaya Buddha. The world is workable. So 
I, I thought I'd stop there, and you're all so quiet. But if anybody has any, you know, related to anything I said or has any questions, or we can have a little discussion, and then we'll take a break way in the back. Question about the razor's edge. Does <clears throat> the razor's edge just exist as it is, or is the razor's edge more like when I'm driving down the highway, going full blast, right on the edge, in a thrill seeker mode, really excited and really awake? Um, so if your question is, uh, do we have to be in the thrill-seeker mode, you know, to, to be on the razor's edge? Is that your question, kind of? Yeah. I don't think so. And, I, I mean, there are thrill-seekers, right? And I think that's part of the reason they do it, is to feel alive. And my husband's one of those. He likes to, you know, rock climb, race motorcycles, race cars, buy gigantic ranches, bulldozers, you know, he needs it to be big to feel alive, but I don't think that's the point of the razor's edge. The razor edge could be, you know, if we're walking down the street and we see the homeless people under East Street underpass, how are we with our feelings? You know, it's just, or maybe we feel lonely or bored. So it doesn't have to be like super sensational, it just has to be staying in the game. I mean, that's the way I think of the razor's edge is you are willing to stay in the game whatever's there instead of um, entertain or distract or numb out. This is where you can catch my back, too. I'll share my microphone. I'll, I'll give them a little homework. Okay. You can share it, yeah. What else? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so that's wonderful. Um, I'm going to give you some practice, because if I don't say it now, this opportunity. Um, so uh, Mandala idea, you know, uh, is like we're really becoming hyper-aware of how we arrive, how we explore the territory, how we find our seat, and then how we leave. So that's why we do the ceremony here, you see. So you're becoming, maybe through me, a little hyper-aware, like someone's arriving. Someone's kind of walking around, then taking the seat, you see. That's why uh, most mandalas uh, are like an aerial view of a temple. So like the Kala Chakra uh, aerial view of a temple. So we enter from the eastern gate, you see. So you know where you're entering, and then you you would walk around, uh, like usually clockwise, and then you take your seat, because in the center is the deity of the Buddha. So the practice is like even now, like you walked here, <laughs> you entered, and now you're taking your seat, and now you're leaving your seat, but you will come back again. So it's becoming very, very aware of of how you arrive, and how you leave, and how you stay. So that the mandala has that center point, not moving, right? But then uh, the gates and the other activities in the mandala are how the energy pattern is happening. Because mandala's like, how's the situation? What's the pattern of the situation? You have to know how to enter. You have to know how to be in the center if you want to stay in balance and sane. And you have to know how you're leaving. So like even right now, we take a break, right? So how are you getting up and then where are you going? How are you leaving the space and how are you returning and then how are you settling in again? This is essential in, in really doing real Tantra work, like how you arrive is big. And then how do you explore the territory? So Ellen's very, very eloquently said, this, this is the territory. Duck rising and disappearing and the suffering and the liberation and then how do you take your seat at the center that's really important and then how do you leave the center and then exit through one of the gates and start up another mandala so we have uh, like um, mostly deity pictures here but we have uh, 
the mandala of Kala Chakra, and then we have, uh, in a sense, a refuge tree, kind of a mandala. That's how the lineage is organized on the tree, right? And uh, also we have contemporary painting in the hallway, uh, uh, beautiful blossoming tree. What, uh, this is the word sangha in the title, right, Cynthia? I'm just getting you, I do know the title. I'm just getting you to say it for the group. <laughs> Yeah, so that's that's mandala too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So uh, afterwards, I'm going to talk about how art saves lives. <laughs> but yeah, how do you find your way in? How do you take your place? How do you belong? finding your seat, and then how do you leave your seat? So, so much of Dharma journey is like how the Buddha found the Vajrasena, the Buddha seat, and then gained realization, and then got up and walked to Deer Park, right? Okay. Should we take a break? Yeah, let's, let's take a break until um, 10 after, so it's six minutes for just a bio break and stretch. <laughs> and then You need more bathrooms, yeah. Okay, well. Seven minutes. Seven minutes, okay. <laughs> 12, 11, then we come back. So we're just going to uh, do a practice. You want to settle back in for 10 minutes or so? And it's basically a shamatha practice. So is there anybody that doesn't know what that means? Okay, so it's just a sort of a settling in. And usually in shamatha practice, if you're new to it, you can use your breath as sort of something to focus your attention on, you know, so you're not so just following thoughts and thinking about your grocery list and how hard the chair is feeling and all that stuff, how hungry you're getting, you know, and just use your breath to kind of calm, including paying attention to your breath as it goes in and comes back out. So I'm, I'm going to lead you through it a little bit because I'll invite you to do a little inquiring as you're thinking that sort of ties back to some of the things we talked about. So you can just start by you know, finding a nice, relaxed, but alert posture. And you can either close your eyes or just leave your eyes open, but maybe just sort of soften the gaze so you're not trying to take a lot in. And just begin by following your breath. And breathe in through your nose if it's comfortable, and notice the sensation of the breath as it goes down into your abdomen. And even take a pause at the end of the inhale. And then notice the exhale. Come back out. And you can use that breath as kind of an anchor. You get into thoughts and thinking or sensations to come back to, to bring your attention back to. You might notice as you're doing the practice some physical sensations. You might notice just the feeling of the seat or the cushion underneath you and your feet on the floor if you're in a chair. You might notice other physical sensations. Maybe you have a little discomfort somewhere, a little tightness. The sensations may come and go. I invite you to notice if you have a story that arises with the sensation. Some narrative that's playing. Or maybe a thought is what's entering your mind stream. And so I invite you to just distinguish the sensation or thought from any narrative you have about it.
if you do notice that there's a, a storyline or a narrative with your experience, you can even see if there's maybe some blaming or cynicism in it in some way. And if you do notice a storyline or some blame or criticism or cynicism, just invite you to return your attention back to the, the raw experience or the initial thought that arises. just continue this practice for a few minutes in this way.
Thank you for your attention, your practice. I wondered just if anybody had any reflection on what it was like to do the meditation and if they were if you're successful at distinguishing the experience from your story maybe from you know blame or or deeper story behind the story even did anybody notice any change or experience with the quality of their practice their meditation in that way Uh, I don't know why, but I just thought about going to San Francisco while I meditated. I like I like the Bay Area. It's very relaxing. Mm-hmm. You you seem very happy about the fact that you thought about going to San Francisco. So, that's good. Okay. Anybody think about going any other exotic places while they were doing their meditation? So, No, but I have a question. Um, what I did think about was, um, I guess it's known as Indira's, Indra's net, mm. which is this, <coughs> excuse me, a net where each intersection is um, highlighted with a reflective jewel. And I'm wondering how that's different from a mandala. I don't, I don't, I don't know Indra's net very well, but. My understanding is, like each intersection has got its own ch- pattern in it, and then if you look deeper into it, you see the same pattern. It repeats itself, and I think that's that's what we're talking about: is that you know that depth of interconnectedness of everything all together. So I don't know whether you'd call it an example of a mandala or or what, but I think that's a good a good. Uh, image anyway or a good pattern uh you know in the in the video which i'll run again if you didn't get a chance to see it there's some of these patterns in nature that repeat themselves all the time like fibonacci series and and some of the squares i don't remember them all but you see them in all these phenomena in um in life amazing life is really amazing when you think about it you know when we can step back and think about it any others? Any other interesting experiences during the meditation? Okay, well, we can just presume it was fantastic for all of you and then <laughs> end on that note. Do we want to do prayers or do we have any other announcements? Okay. so much yeah yeah then good idea to use uh, you know coming in the projector and everything it's fantastic yeah <coughs> uh, uh, I'm gonna ask Peter to hand out uh, uh, a sheet called art saves lives it's a fundraiser so we can have uh, a permanent sign uh, out in front. Um, <clears throat> uh, we, uh, I mentioned that it's important to know how to enter, right? So we, we want people to know who we are. We have Dona Darge, of course, Yuna Sutra Tantra, but that, um, that's a rather esoteric name, right? So we need a sign. It says lines for Dharma Center, paper sign, but it needs to say a Buddhist temple. And uh, if we have enough room, big enough, then it would say in the tradition of the Dalai Lama, then identify, right? So uh, we need to raise money for that. Um, but that's within the context of uh, uh, the expression of uh, uh, un- unmediated expression so of our awareness so uh, we're going to hand out a sheet has some testimonials uh, I love the testimonials best part on the other side Patty shook people down for testimonials <laughs> <coughs> so we're, I'm emphasizing the visual 
part a little bit here because it's the sign generally visible. But uh, when we say art saves lives, uh, we're also speaking to uh, the uh, poets in the room, right? So I think on on the wall uh, we have maybe seven or eight uh, poems right now. The whole wall should be uh, full, right? And then on the other side of the wall we have photographs and photographies and art, right? So we have uh, some. We have a professional photographer and videographer in the in the room. So shout out! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yes, with um, yeah. <clears throat> and then uh, we have musicians. So uh, music is uh, its own expression, its own uh, mandala. So we have musicians, musics extremely important here and uh, we have flowers and we have kind of dancing because we have Tai Chi but we we, we need dancing too uh, we've had a wedding here that was a long time ago we had dancing so we need we need more dancing actually so <laughs> but uh, these arts and art is part of the Nalanda tradition where we um, learn how to dance and write poems and recite poems and draw and create sculptures. So extremely important as uh, uh, the appearance uh, and the emptiness are not seen as separate, correct? Right? So, um, so we, we have almost, almost one for everybody, but if you don't want one, then say, I don't want one. <laughs> and give it to someone else like that. So, how are the poets doing? What would you say, Dirk? How are, how, how are poets doing these days? Poets are developing. How are... Poets are developing poetry. Poets are developing poetry. And how's... Flowers going. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So we need we need a we need a picture of the sand mandala, don't you think so? Yeah, but the sand mandala that you know we did here, right? So we put up on the wall. Yeah. So that you know. So we, can we pull that up from the Zach B photos? Can we? Yeah. Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody? Yeah, stand up, stand up. Yeah, just stand up and say hi. Some, they don't know who you are. Yeah. Autumn pain with a Y, <coughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So that's important. We need that. We don't have. We don't really have that. We have. We have a San Mandela we did downtown at uh, a store downtown a few years ago. Yeah, need that. Okay. And uh, we have a very unique form of art um, that uh, was just presented by a Sangha member. Uh, <laughs> this is the best. Like, this is a. Lojong quilt. So we, we've got to hang it up a little bit, maybe in the community room, the dojo, so people can read it. It's just like, this is, this is like, so we need a photograph of this today somehow, right? Yeah, this is like, so if you, if you have to do like anything, you know, of course we take refuge, develop bodhicitta, and do, uh, or tranquility shamatha meditation, then do lojong and then do zogchen, right? You know, so at least do those three, okay? You know, <laughs> this, is, um, this is fantastic. That's, this is really American Dharma, right? This is really it. So like that. <clears throat> so um, I'm going to. Uh, hang out for a couple of hours, then leave for Zan Bazaar like around 2.30. So maybe I'll see everybody.
like that. It's nice to see, you know, different people, musician here, Andrew. How's your gigs going? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So are you going to invite us sometime? Or? Yeah, so you should post something on the post something on the bulletin board, right? You can do that. Yeah. Yeah, put it up there. Yeah. Oh, be out there. Did I miss any other musicians? Yeah. Hidden hidden poets, hidden artists. Hidden people sing in the shower. Okay. Designing designing websites uh, finally Designing websites is an art form too, actually. So you know, I do finally want to give uh, a real shout out to Rob. You know, who's uh, just painstakingly done a new beautiful website, which is still, of course, constantly developing like poetry. So thank you so much for that. You know, that's so time intensive, right? And so like. I respect web designers and of course Dirk's web designer too because you're really out there to the whole world and there is not any web designer or any website where people have not said you made a mistake on this, right? <laughs> so generally in art form, you know, we might say I like it or don't like it or I like Tara Madonna statue or I like the Sangha tree, but that's only with websites, you know, you, you, you could have used a different platform for that. You know, I mean, that's amazing, right? So thank you. All right, let's do dedication. And this has been a Lion's Roar Dharma Center recording. For more information, visit lionsroardharmacenter.org.